This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Independent news commentary with a California perspective. Season 7, Episode 20, Getting California's Kids Back to School. Dan Walters, veteran journalist, shares his analysis. When California's schools closed in March 2020, we never imagined that one year on, we'd still be struggling to reopen them. The damage inflicted on our kids has been immense. A new report on impacts in the Los Angeles Unified School District, the nation's second largest school system, reveals the extent of the damage. With us today to discuss the negative impact school closures have had on all California kids, and especially those at greater risk, is Dan Walters, California's longest-serving journalist and observer of California's people, politics, and society since the 1960s. Dan began his professional career in 1960 at the age of 16 at the Humboldt Times in Eureka, Northern California, while still in high school. In fact, Dan turned down a National Merit Scholarship to continue working as a journalist. At age 22, he became the nation's youngest daily newspaper editor at the Hanford Sentinel, one of three editorships he's held over the years. In 1975, he joined the Sacramento Union's Capitol Bureau just as Jerry Brown became the governor to serve the first of four terms as the state's chief executive. In 1981, he began writing the state's only daily newspaper column devoted to California political, social, and economic events. He and his incisive column moved on to the Sacramento Bee in 1985. He's authored over 9,000 columns about California and its unique politics. He's also been a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Science Monitor, and many other national publications. A prolific writer and author contributor to several books, he now writes for the daily online publication Cal Matters. It's an honor to have the Dean of the California Journalist Corps on the San Francisco Experience. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Terrific. Well, Dan, Let's jump right into the subject of getting California school kids back in the classroom and assessing the damage they've suffered after one year of school closure. Take it away, Dan. All right. Well, thank you very much. I think to understand the the damage that the pandemic wrought, we have to kind of look back at where we were before pandemic struck in California's public education. So a few little grounders, as it were. We have about 6 million children in the public school system public schools of California, and it's the largest single expenditure from the state budget. We're spending about $12,000 a kid per year. It actually adds up to around $80 billion a year. That's that's a lot of money. $80 billion Mm -hmm. is a lot of money if your name's not uh, uh, Gates or Buffett or something like that. And that money uh, wasn't buying very much, to be truthful. Our public schools do not uh, shape up, do not compare well with those of other states by any measure, whether it's a national 
test scores of academic achievement, of high school uh, completion rates, all of these measures, we're really down down near the bottom, in truth, in all those measures. Now, one side says it's, it's a, a, a lack of will, not really a good organization. The other side says, no, we just need more, spend more money, and the debate goes on year after year after year. Our, our educational achievement has been particularly bad among poor and earning English learner kids, people who don't speak English as the first language, can kids come from poor families. And almost all of those kids are, are children of color. And they, they have miserable, really miserable scores on these achievement tests. So about uh, a decade ago, when Jerry Brown began his second governorship, he came up with the idea of, of giving schools more money to close that achievement gap. And that's what it's officially called. It's an achievement gap between the poor and English, English learner kids. And that's about 60% of all the kids in school qualify in that category. Wow. The, the gap between them and the more privileged classmates, who are mostly white and Asian. And it was called the local control funding formula. And it completely revamped school finance in California in such a way as to give schools more money supposed to be aimed specifically at closing that gap and help, helping these children, these, these at-risk children, these underachieving children, catch up with their classmates. Mm-hmm. Well, it hasn't happened. So even when, before COVID hit, that achievement gap was pretty much as wide as it ever had been. And it, and it wasn't seemingly getting any narrower. And then COVID comes along. The schools are shut down. Public schools are shut down. And the school districts scramble to try to provide at-home education via the Internet. But right off the bat, the disadvantages that these children had on the lower end of the scale become magnified. They didn't have facilities at home. Many of them did not have internet access. They did not have laptop computers. So they were they were handicapped at the very onset of this experiment in at-home learning. Mm-hmm. And over the last year, it didn't get any better, in effect. And that's the point of this new report on Los Angeles Unified School District, the, the nation's second largest school system with about a half a million kids in school. Uh, and a group called Great Public Schools a local advocacy group, went into the data, the L.A. Unified's own data, to find out what happened during this last year of supposedly at-home learning. Dan, can and I just, jump, find, can I just yeah. jump in there? Um, after, after eight years of Jerry Brown in his second iteration, Jerry Brown 2.0, his second iteration of uh, governor of California, I mean, he identified the problem of an achievement gap, particularly for... Uh, among Hispanic uh, English as a second language group, he identified the problem, put more resources at it, had eight years to show some results. Why didn't it work? Why did it fail? Well, it's, it's, a, it's one of those great questions. And it appears, and there has not been any comprehensive uh, let's just say autopsy or examination of what happened. Most of the examination has been journalistic in nature, including some pretty massive work by my own organization, calmatters.org. But it appears that a lot of the money got diverted 
It got diverted into salary increases. It got diverted into other overhead, whatnot, rather than being focused on the education of the children who uh, obviously needed help the most. Uh, and one reason for that is that there was very, very little oversight by the state of how the school districts were spending this extra money. Jerry Brown took the attitude publicly and repeatedly said that he did not believe the state should be overseeing what was done at the local level. He called it a principle of subsidiarity, which is his version of a kind of a strange Catholic school, Catholic church dogma. <laughs> yes. You know, it's Jerry after all, right? Yeah. And, you uh, you almost basically said it always boils down to we trust the locals to do the right thing. You almost have to have gone to Catholic school to interpret a lot of Jerry Brown's vocabulary. Now, it, yeah. I, I'm surprised. I mean, Jerry Brown had a reputation as governor for being uh, parsimonious, uh, for wanting to see results. Um, I'm surprised that he would have, on the one hand, increased the budget and actually put money into investing in these kids, but then stepped away from holding the local school districts to account. Well, yeah, it's true, and that's exactly what did happen. And uh, in the absence of the governor's push, there has been, in fact, very little oversight of how this money has been spent. The oversight has... If it, to the extent that it's occurred, has occurred because of education reform groups, outside groups, like the group I just started to mention, the Great Public Schools Group, kind of watching the school districts and and analyzing as best they can how the money was spent, and in some cases, filing complaints with the State Department of Education, in some cases, even filing lawsuits that uh, challenging how school districts have been spending this money, but through it all, the governor has taken this hands-off, took this hands-off attitude, saying he trusts the locals to do the right thing. Now, is there politics involved? Yes, because clearly one of the most powerful entities in California in a political context is the California Teachers Association. Yep. They, didn't, they did not want oversight. They did not want tight accountability for how this money is spent because, frankly, they saw this as an opportunity to get more money for themselves in terms of salaries. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the money, in fact, went into raising teacher salaries during this last, over the last decade. And uh, now they will say, well, raising teacher salaries gets you better teachers and gets better education and helps these kids. But the bottom line is that the achievement gap has remained as stubbornly wide as ever. And in fact, over the last year, because of this, the COVID isolation of these children, that gap has widened immeasurably. So, And it's gotten much worse because, you know, affluent parents, middle-income and above-middle-income parents, they'll take care of their kids. They'll get the tutors if they need it. They'll get them the computers if they need it. They'll get them the extra help. They'll create these learning pods and bring in uh, teachers for for tutoring on the side and all this kind of stuff. They'll do what's necessary to make sure their kids do well. But poor kids don't have those resources. And in particular, and without those resources, it just didn't work very well. Yeah. And in particular, the poor kids that we're talking about here are the English as a second language group of kids, the Hispanic kids, the Mexican-American kids, the kids from Central America, many of whom, of course, uh, have arrived in this country recently. And, um, you know, they need to have uh, more educational resources thrown at them. So, so just to sum up then, Jerry Brown, 
identified the problem early on in his second governorship. He allocated additional funds to address the problem, did not bring in the accountability that he should have brought in, in part because of, uh, uh, as you stated, because of the CTA and their opposition to increased state accountability. And then, of course, we get hit by the the pandemic last year, and these kids who were vulnerable to begin with, who weren't performing, who, who weren't improving in their their academic performance, then essentially they had a year off school, basically. Yeah. While their while their other kids were getting at least some schooling, mm-hmm. uh, so maybe they they probably didn't get what what they needed necessarily, but they got a lot more than these kids who were already uh, behind. It was child neglect. I mean, mm-hmm. call, let's talk about it. It's, it was child neglect, mass on a massive basis. The state of California just kissed off these kids. They just kissed them off. They said, "Oh well, too bad." Or something to that effect. I mean, everybody talked about, oh, this isn't as, as terrible, isn't as terrible, isn't as terrible, but they admit very little was done about it. And, and I think if you if you look at what happened in L.A. Unified, which in some respects mirrors the state as a whole, in some respects not, because it has an enormous number of these kids who fall into this foreign English literature category, like 80% of their students fall into that category. Really? And and it's 60% statewide, 80%, and in some school districts, around the state, it's 100%. So it's, it's, uh, this is not a small group of children. This is a very, very large group of children. And you look what happened in L.A. Unified, and maybe we should talk a little bit about some what this, what this study found out. Yeah. But the, the summation of it, quote, was, COVID-19 pandemic has interrupted the livelihoods, health, education, child care, and financial stability of millions, and students in Los Angeles Unified School District are experiencing the painful loss of connection with their peers, teachers and school staff and serious loss of learning that will have lifelong consequences if not addressed. So what's among the findings, they found that 40% of LA Unified's middle and high schoolers were disengaged or absent for classes in last spring, last spring of 2020. My goodness. See, the disengagement is even higher for elementary kids. More than 13,000 middle and high school students were consistently disengaged in fall of 2020. And an additional 56,000 did not even participate in classes. Now, they were basically dropped out. Two-thirds of L.A. Unified students are falling behind in literacy and math, and fewer young students of color are on target in reading skills compared to a year earlier. Now, and this, when, is, this is what happened. And then when you add on top of that the fact that California has been very slow to reopen its public schools during this pandemic, in fact, here in San Francisco, uh, we have only just begun a phase-in reopening in the last week to 10 days of our schools. So our schools were closed from March 16th of 2020 through the beginning of April of 2021. I imagine, was, it, uh, was that a similar calendar down in uh, L.A. Unified? Yeah, and this has been true. I mean, we have been very slow to reopening. Why have we been? Because of unresolved conflicts between teacher unions and the administrations of schools over the conditions by which the schools would reopen. The teachers demanded all sorts of things, you know, more, more vaccinations, more safety this, more safety that. And under state law, changes in working conditions have to be negotiated. They cannot be imposed by a school district on their own. Plus the fact that 
it was clear that the governor, Gavin Newsom, was reluctant, as Jerry Brown was reluctant to do anything about uh, the uh, funding form that he sponsored. Gavin Newsom has been very reluctant to confront the teacher unions over the issue of opening schools. And one of the greatest ironies of that is the fact that Gavin Newsom's own children, like other uh, children in private schools around California, have been back in class since last fall. Amazing. His children have been back in class as at a very uh, Tony uh, private school in Sacramento, have been back in class since October and November of last year, while the public school children in Sacramento have been sitting there twiddling their thumbs, basically. This is really a, a crime, if you think about it. There's a crime against children that politicians at the local and state level were willing to just kind of look the other way while this was going on. Now, they made words. They said words. Oh, we'd like to get the kids back to school. Oh, we'd like to get the kids back to school. But in fact, they did almost nothing to make it happen. And in most of California, it still isn't happening. Most of the children, California school children, are still not back in classroom instruction. And as most of them are just beginning to reopen, here we're near the end of another school year. Yes, yes. And almost nothing has happened on that front. And we don't even know whether the schools will be reopening in the fall. Well, you know, we it's, truly don't. It's, it's interesting that you state that because, of course, I'm here in San Francisco. Uh, and here in San Francisco, we actually have a recall initiative underway to recall half of the Board of Education. We have an elected Board of Education here in San Francisco. Uh, and the reason for that recall uh, was uh, is, is uh, there, there are many reasons for it. And the only reason that half are being recalled is that the other, the other six members who are not being recalled haven't been in office long enough to qualify for recall. Otherwise, they would be subject to recall too. But our school board here in San Francisco wasted precious time fighting over changing the names of uh, schools in San Francisco. Uh, we had the uh, vice chairman of the school board who was tweeting anti-Asian racist tweets. She's now sued the school board, which censured her. She's now sued the school board for $87 million when the school board already has a deficit, $169 million. Um, they fired uh, qualified administrators who... Uh, ideally could have helped with the reopening of schools. They're now gone. Uh, they, they rejected hiring a consultant to help with the reopening. So as a result, San Francisco voters have taken matters into their own hands. There's a recall underway. And well, the recall, the, the signature gathering is underway. So, so the point is, at least citizens in San Francisco, and you might be surprised that it's San Francisco with the liberal reputation that we have, but nonetheless, citizens in San Francisco have been so frustrated with the school board that not only is there an effort underway to put a recall on the ballot, there's also talk to simply abolish the school board as it exists as an elected body, it's only been elected since 1971 when Joe Aliotta was mayor. And prior to that, it was an appointed school board as the school boards are appointed in New York City and Chicago. So I just want to throw that in there, that that parent parental frustration here in San Francisco has reached such a boiling point 
that we are looking at a recall of the school board. Do you see do you see that uh, parental frustration bubbling up at on the statewide level? Are there recalls else? Well, we we know about the governor's recall. Yeah, well, it, that frustration is 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 widespread all around the United, all around the state. Uh, there have been a number of demonstrations and everything. In fact, it's it's no secret that parental frustration about the schools has been one of the drivers of the recall movement against Gavin Newsom. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frustrated parents uh, have been among the most eager signers of the recall petitions. So yes, there is this this backlash, if you will, all around the state. Uh, And, but, you know, whatever that, those things point out, the, the main point here is this. And this is a, an example of a syndrome that's been going on as long as I've been covering California education, either to local or state level, and that goes back almost 60 years. I covered school boards back in 1960. I know how these things work. And I knew it then. I saw it then. I see it now. I've seen it ever since. And that is simply this, that the welfare of school children is almost the least concern of those involved in school politics. Hmm. We have adults who, who pursue their own agendas, and the kids are just pawns in those agendas. Mm. They're playing the, the one-upsmanship between the unions, the administrators, the school board, the school board elections, the stuff that goes on at the state level and the legislature with the governors. And these are adults playing their games and paying almost no attention, truly no attention, to what children need to be well educated, uh, it's a it's it's so it's a it's a larger issue even than what's gone on in COVID. It's a larger issue than what's gone on with the uh, local funding formula Jerry Brown put through. These are just basically symptoms of the larger concern that the children in public schools in California come last when it comes to making education policy. At the, among politicians, either at the local or state level, they just—they really don't give a damn. Dan, is, is is California unique in this regard, or is that pretty much par for the course in American politics throughout the country? Or is California unique? No, it's not unique. You see the same syndrome in other uh, larger states where politics are, are heavy-duty professional politics. For example, the members of the Los Angeles School Board are full-time. They get paid very high salaries. They're like members of the legislature. These are are plum political positions to be mm-hmm. on the L.A. School Board. Uh, and lots of money is spent electing them and, and opposing them and trying to get people elected and all this stuff. And you see that in other large uh, states with uh, heavy-duty politics, like New York, for example, uh, Chicago, and but you don't see it in more rural states. Um, people take seri- education seriously in those places. They're not political games. These are civic matters, not political matters. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, the education outcomes are much better in smaller rural states than they are in these large urban states such as California and New York. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I mean, and it doesn't seem to have much to do with money. I've done some extensive research and written about X number of times that you cannot make any correlation between educational success on a state-to-state basis and the amount of money that's spent on education. 
Isn't that strange? It's None. None whatsoever. Bizarre. No correlation. But Dan, let's I mean, go- California, California is a medium spender on education. Mm-hmm. New York is second highest in the country in spending on education. And our test scores, our national tests, are just virtually identical. And there are states that spend half as much as California, rural states that spend half as much as California, and and are do much, much better on educational achievement than we do in California. Mm-hmm. So there's something else going on here other than money, and a lot of it is simply that our political polarization has translated, it infects the schools, and it, it becomes games that adults play to the detriment of children. Dan, let's just come back for a minute to the... Um uh, to the the report, the LA Unified School District report. I mean, essentially, we have a missed year for the majority of our public school kids who are uh, Hispanic. We'll say whether that's in Southern California, and well, LA, it's, it's, or it's, it's 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 black, Hispanic, and some Asians are the majority of these at-risk children. The sixty percent of California's mm-hmm. school children who are at risk of failure. So they've lost uh, a, they've lost a year essentially of right. acad, of academic achievement in the reopening that the governor negotiated with the CTA the California Teachers Association was that issue was that achievement gap was that uh, was that addressed will will there be additional resources to uh, to dedicate to those kids who've missed this year was that addressed at all no. It was simply money given to the school district as a whole uh, to try to basically <clears throat> persuade them to get back and to get back into business, go op- reopen the classrooms. It was a, a kind of a bribe, bribe money, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it had nothing to do with these children, these at-risk children per se. Uh, I mean, people pay some lip service to it. Oh, yeah, it's terrible what's happened to the kids. But then, but the but the governor's deal with the CTA didn't produce anything either. I mean, he threw the money out and said, now it's up. He kind of like took a, a, cue, a cue out of Jerry Brown. He said, well, here's the money. Now I wash my hands of it. That's what Jerry Brown said on his thing. Here's the money. Now I wash my hands of it. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm, I'm guessing that, um, I'm guessing that, you, you know, these kids, these at-risk kids having lost a year when, when they graduate What's going to happen if they can't graduate from high school? Well, one of the other findings of the L.A. report were, and I'll quote again, many high school, I'll I'll paraphrase what they said, many high school students are at risk of graduating. Currently, 20% of the class of 2021, 43% of the class of 2022, 37% of the class of 2023, and 30% of the class of 2024 will not graduate because they will lack the qualifications to graduate because of this. So as a result of the lockdown, we have now set ourselves up for a multi-year, three, four, five-year increased high school failure rate in this state, just at a time when we're looking to, when we're looking for people with more skills and higher skills, we're now going to be faced over the next three to four years with a higher high school failure rate just at a time when we yes. need people with more skills. And now, and, and when you're, when you're, when you fail from high school or you barely get out of high school, that doesn't qualify you then to go into college and get the higher education, which is another, another 
ripple effect of this, and there's even a worse ripple effect. There was a study I actually quoted in a previous column uh, that projected that the, the lack of education from this pandemic layoff call it, will actually shorten the lives of the children, that because they're not getting the education, they're not going to get the income and so forth, and that will manifest itself eventually in years off of their lives. I, I could believe that. I could believe that because higher educational attainment and increased life expectancy go hand in hand. And, yes, they do. And as you reduce as you reduce educational attainment, needless to say, you're also chipping away at six months, a year, two years off uh, off a off a life expectancy. That's it's, that's very cruel, very cruel. And as and as that occurs, that then ripples down into the generations of those children who are, who don't have the educations, are not getting the good jobs, who don't have the income. That then affects their children in return, and you and you prolong this cycle of having this wide achievement gap uh, in California schools. It's really a serious issue that is mm-hmm. not getting the kind of a. It gets lip service, but no real crisis attention. I mean, it, it's right up there. It should be right up there with the wildfire risk, with the earthquake risk, with the flood risk, all these other things that we talk about as being risks. Well, the risk of having so many children not being adequately educated is just as it's just as serious a risk, maybe even more so. It may even have a greater risk to actual life than any of these other calamities we talk about. Gosh. And it's 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 amazing when you think about it, because back when I was in California's public schools, back in the 50s, God, that seems like a long time ago, the 50s. <laughs> let, me say, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. I went to junior high school in San Diego mm-hmm. uh, about 1956, 57, something in that, that, that area. In junior high school, we're talking junior high school now, I took drafting, electric shop, learned how to operate a metal lathe. I built radios. <laughs> <laughs> and in addition to the academic classes, these things sort of things were being offered in junior high school back when I was growing up. Do they do that today? No. No. Yeah, we don't have that, that kind of enriched education that Californians once enjoyed. So, so Dan, uh, Dan, what's the solution to this? Because as, as you've just laid it out with those uh, chilling statistics and the projected failure rates, uh, dropout rates, failure rates for non-high school graduation, who in Sacramento is taking this crisis on and is doing something to fix it. Uh, clearly, it, it appears that the governor isn't. So who's stepping into the breach? Individual legislators will will uh, championing the idea of, of this educational apartheid that we have in California. Uh, and, but it's not something that, for example, Shirley Weber, who just became Secretary of State when she was in the State Assembly. She was a former teacher in San Diego, and she made a big issue out of accountability for the money being spent on these poor kids and everything. But now she's out of the legislature. Individual legislators have taken up the issue from time to time, but the fact, the political uh, leadership of California, from the governor and through most of the legislature, is totally, totally connected at the hip with the California Teachers Association. Hmm. 
And that then kind of forestalls the kind of stricter accountability for outcomes that we probably need. People need to be held accountable for outcomes, Mm -hmm. whether it's teachers or administrators or school boards or governors or legislators. It's the outcome that counts. It's not the input. It's the outcome. And all they talk about is inputs, mostly financial inputs. The, 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 The debate over public education in California at the state level begins and ends with money. Now, Nobody ever talks about anything else other than money. Now, Dan, in the few minutes remaining to us, why don't we? T- uh, could you give us? Could you give us your take on where we stand with the the recall? Because it looks as though the recall is going to qualify. The last numbers that I saw, the last uh, opinion poll numbers I saw, uh, put Gavin Newsom at fifty six percent. But as we all know, under a recall. While 56% in a normal election looks pretty strong, 56% in a recall is just uh, is only six points above him being voted out of office because yeah. the recall vote basically is all about him. It's either up or down on him. So he's he has to get 50% plus one in order to retain his office. Right now he's at 56%. So if he gets 49.5%, he's out. Yeah, and, uh, but it's not just about him, uh, because there's two issues on the ballot for a recall. Number one is, well, should you recall the governor? The second, the second ballot is, who do you want to replace him Yes, among the candidates who have put their names on the ballot? And the last recall we had, 18 years ago, there were 135 candidates on the ballot. Now, we know that what happened is Arnold Schwarzenegger got about 45% of that vote and, and became the next governor. Now... All of that notwithstanding, will Gavin Newsom be recalled? Probably not. Probably not. The state is much more democratic than it was 18 years ago. Uh, and But you have to put that probably caveat on there because nobody knows what the mood of Californians is going to be next November when they actually vote. We're now in April. Right. November is seven months away. Mm-hmm. And a lot of things can happen or not happen in seven months. The COVID thing could pop up again, yep. uh, forcing the governor to maybe close down the economy again. Uh, we could have wildfires. We could have blackouts. We had, we don't know whether the economy will be ever recovered or not. You know, the economy of California isn't doing particularly well these days. Mm-hmm. Our unemployment rate as of March, the last n- numbers we have, our unemployment rate is the third highest in the country. Really? We are at eight. We are at eight and a half percent, and only New York and Hawaii are higher. And there are four states tied at number one at two point nine percent. Think of that: two point nine percent unemployment in four states. Wow! And the national and the national rate is only about six percent. And here we are, fifty percent higher than the national rate. We have about a million and a half Californians still out of work in relationship to who are working in terms of numbers anyway, who were working before COVID hit, we have lost a million and a half jobs net so far. Mm. And so our, economically, we're not doing that well. So it'll, it'll, whether Gavin Newsom is recalled or not recalled will depend on what voters think of the situation seven months from now, mm-hmm. whether the economy has come back or not, whether we have another flare-up of COVID, whether we've had wildfires, whether we have blackouts, we've had all sorts of things can happen in seven months. And as we've seen in the past, very recent past, a lot of things can happen in seven months. Absolutely. So, so you can't say absolutely he will win. 
He's probably will. He's probably likely that he'll win. If you're going to bet money on it, you probably bet money they'll win. But it's not a sure thing. That's and sure. it won't be a sure thing until the votes are counted. Well, listen, Dan, on that note, um, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today. And, uh, You're welcome. Sharing your insights and your historic perspective on this wonderful state of California of 40 million people. Um, and of course, we would love to have you come back and uh, share your perspective on not only on this issue, the schools, but on me- on the many other issues that confront our, our wonderful, beautiful, but very complex state. Once again, Dan, thank you very much for joining us on the San Francisco Experience. You're welcome. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www the San Francisco Experience Podcast.com and subscribe. It's free to do so, and a subscription ensures new episodes go straight to your inbox. You can also listen to all 144 episodes. You can read my blog, make comments, or send me an email. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city. San Francisco.